The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Did you drop something there? I turned your mic on and I heard something metal hit the ground. No, that was, I was just putting a glass down on the table, oh. Jim. Getting ready for a tech talk. You need to wet the whistle before you start talking. Exactly. There you go. We'll start talking. Well, lots of stuff has been going on in technology. I mean, Maryland is trying to get a piece of the action. They're the first state that's going to start taxing online ad revenue. I think we're going to start seeing more and more people trying to cut into big tech. This week, we're going to feature the man who actually invented the laser jet printer. Uh, his name is Gary Starkweather, and he worked for Xerox. And Xerox rejected it because they said, we're a copier company. Oops. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mail. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. This isn't actually a tech talk, tech talk question, but since you've traveled to India on occasion, I thought you'd like to to see this video about uh, about um, projections of where India is going to be in the world. It looks like education or bright people coming from India are taking some high-level positions in the U.S. Uh, this video makes some very good points. Interesting, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, that was an interesting video, and I have spent time in India. <clears throat> and India is generate is going to be generating, at least in northern India, probably 20 million workers, excess workers, for the global economy. India is going through something what they call a demographic bonus. Um, they had a demographic bonus in southern India for the past 15 years. Now, what causes a demographic bonus is when a country is primarily agricultural, rural, and poor, uh, the average number of children per married female is around 6.5 children per married female. And then what happens, uh, um, healthcare comes in, and then the population starts climbing because they would have 6.5 children, but maybe two would die in childbirth. But once healthcare comes in, we don't have the uh, childbirth problem, and the population begins climbing. Then education comes in. And when education comes into a society, the women say, to heck with 6.5 babies. And they want to change, they, they want to change the whole formula. And so as soon as healthcare and education come in, you see a, a, a spike in, in population, and then you see a start drop, a sharp drop in education. And uh, but then that that spike or a, a start drop a, a, a peak in population, I should say, and then a drop in population. Well, that spike in population 
is unencumbered with large families because there's been a, a sea change. And so a country either has to um, educate them or pay the price. So there was a demographic bonus in southern India over the last 15 years, and that's what fueled the IT revolution down there in Hyderabad, in, in Bangalore. And, um, and so the IT revolution was fueled there. A lot of our IT workers came from southern India. And uh, that was just normally, normally what would what would happen. Now, when uh, when a country goes through a demographic bonus, the average age goes up. So the average age in southern India is now uh, 20, uh, 35. Now, the average age of India overall is 26. Now, here's here's the thing that I'd like you to note. The average age in northern India that is still rural and is still agricultural is 22. Wow. Northern India is about ready to go into a second demographic bonus. Northern India is going to produce 20 million workers, excess workers for the global economy. So yeah, manpower in India is a big deal. Now, you know what the average age in the United States is, Jim? Gosh, I don't know. It's saying in the 30s, upper 30s, uh, early 40s. 46. 46? Yeah. We're too old to generate a demographic bonus. You know what the average age in uh, Europe is? Probably about the same, probably closer to upper 40s. 48. You were right, Jim, 48. So it turns out that the industrialized countries that have, uh, on average, um, had their average age climbing cannot generate enough children to fuel the future. So... We are going to need to have some of those 20 million excess workers from northern India migrate to the United States to help fuel our economy. Now, but this has been happening for a while. For instance, I mean, if you look at look at Silicon Valley, the CEO of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, Sundar Pichai, Indian. The CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, Indian. The CEO of Adobe, Shantanu Naraya, Indian. The CEO of Palo Alto Networks, Nikesh Arora, Indian. There is a huge number of individuals from India who've come to the U.S. and have been successful in technology. And in fact, many of them have started tech companies and are responsible for a lot of the growth in technology in the U.S. Now, the woman in this video makes a very good point. India has an emphasis on education. They've had a mandatory education for all in place for a while, and that has had a huge impact on the country. And as a society, Indian parents value education. So they, I, I don't want to say force, I would say they strongly encourage their children to pursue higher education. Now, the second thing that India has that is uh, really extraordinary for that part of the world, they're a democracy. That comes out of, uh, out of, the, uh, you know, out of, out of their roots. Uh, and uh, it's, a it's a democracy, and it's a vibrant democracy. And India also has freedom of religion and freedom of thought. And that is an important element to a society that can, that can innovate. So... 
all of these things combined, access to manpower, access to um, education, um, a free society, bodes well for India. So long term, the point of this video was that India will surpass China because of these advantages. But it's, it's an interesting thing. I believe when I listen to all the uh, talk about immigration policy in the U.S., that we have not understood the core problem, that we must have immigrants to fuel our economy. And what they have done with their policies on student visas and getting uh, H-1B visas to work after you get your education, we've started driving those who come from India for education, after they get out, we've been driving them back to India. So now India's got its own Silicon Valley made up of people who we educated, and then we wouldn't let them stay. So I'm thinking if the politicians have any sense, they would try to make it easier for those who are educated and con contribute to the society to migrate to the U.S. So let me ask you a question, if I'm not cutting you off here. Sure. Is it possible for a country like the United States or Europe or, you know, th th that general area that's older, is it possible to get younger without immigration in order to have another economic bonus? Is that possible over time? It's, it's unlikely. I mean, uh, okay, if you could convince the, the, the young people to have large families— you could do that. Now, I don't know how many young people you know, Jim, but if you tell uh, someone young who's just about to get married, hey, I'd like you to have six kids, uh, you're not going to get a big response. No, that, you're absolutely right. And, and and so most people, young kids getting married, they say, oh, I'm going to have two children. Well, two children is, is the same. Right. Two children replace two parents. Right. So there is no growth with two children. You have to have an average family size significantly larger than two to grow the economy. And what happens is with education and with uh, the equality of the sexes where women are working just like men, uh, there is a movement in the U.S., in India, uh, I mean in Europe and all the developed countries to have smaller and smaller families. The same is true in uh, Japan. I, I mean Japan is you know, has, has had small families for a while. Their average age is very high. So you have developing countries are going to generate the population for the world economy. But once they become developed, <laughs> they become like everybody else and they have uh, fewer children. Yeah. There's no way to shift it. Yeah. What we have to do is make our society welcoming to people from other countries and help them get educated. What we don't want are people to come to the country who have no intention of being educated, have no intention of working and want to go on welfare. That we don't want. Right. We want to provide opportunities for those who are inspired to make a difference. These are, these are serious questions. And when I hear the demagoguery on both sides of the aisle over this issue, I realize that none of our politicians are demographers. They actually do not understand the underlying issues. We got an email from Mary Ann in Oakton. Dear Tech Talk, last week you explained how to recover passwords from a Chrome browser on a Windows computer. Well, I've got a different problem. I don't really use my laptop that much. I use the Safari browser on my iPhone. I also want to recover passwords. Is there any way to do it on the iPhone? Because I really need that. Well, 
uh, Marianne, you're lucky. There's an easy way to do it. Now, Safari is the uh, is the Apple browser, so it's tightly integrated with the op Apple operating system. So they store those passwords within settings. So click on settings in your iPhone, and then scroll down to something called, well, what we'd expect, passwords. Click on it, and it will open up a screen with all the websites you've visited, and, and you click on the website you want the password for, and you'll see your username and password. Now, they also have a, have a nice feature there. If you've got like a weak password, they're going to say your password's too weak. You should change it. If you've used the same password in multiple locations, they're going to give you a warning. So they, they give you a friendly reminder to try to, get, to try to manage your passwords properly. That was a great question, Marianne. We got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I just bought a new computer monitor. When I got home, I realized that I'd not checked my input ports. This monitor, which I got on sale, only has DVI inputs, not HDMI. DVI, uh, as a sidebar, is kind of the older uh, video connection. Uh, unfortunately, my computer only has got HDMI outputs. I got a great deal, but I'm, I think I may have to return the monitor. I can't plug it in. What are my options, Peter and Fairfax? Well, Peter, there's a very simple way to do it. You can actually get an HDMI to D DVI cable. HDMI to DVI cable. I mean, I looked them, on, I looked them up on Amazon. You know, they're about 10 bucks. They're really uh, quite inexpensive. You see, DVI, called digital video input, is the older technology. It includes the video channel, but not the audio channel. HDMI is is high-definition media interface. It includes uh, high-definition video as well as audio. It's a complete package. And so HDMI is the, new, is the new standard for connecting to TVs, and DVI is the old standard. But don't worry. You're going to be just fine. I mean, DVI works for a computer monitor because you're not sending sound to the monitor, so you really don't need HDMI. So that cable is going to fix your problem without a, a, any issues at all. We got an email from Knock in Cleveland. Dear Doc and Jim, a good friend of mine kept hounding me to like her Facebook page. I finally did. And now I'm getting nonstop posts. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to see all of her posts. I mean, I just, I can only see pictures of so many kittens. So... <laughs> And, uh, and I'm more uh, serious, if you know what I mean. Yes. So please help me. A longtime podcast listener, Knock in Cleveland. I don't know what kind of pictures Knock is getting up there. We know the kind of email she usually has. Uh-huh. Well, we got, well, good news, Knock. It is possible to like a page and then block posts from the, your, your news feed. So what you do is uh, you visit the timeline of your Facebook, of your friend's Facebook page, when you're on her timeline, there are three dots on the right side of the of the menu bar. Then that displays the options menu. And then you want to click follow settings. And then you just simply unfollow the page and then click update button. So you can like the page, but unfollow them. If you unfollow them, you they don't she does not show up on your news feed, but you still like them. The good news is. She doesn't know that you unfollowed her. So it's your little secret. Best of luck with that, Knock. 
we got an email from Diane in Pittsburgh. Dear Tech Talk, the hard drive in my laptop has stopped working and I need to take it somewhere to be fixed. Now, I've got a recent backup where I could store everything uh, once the bad hard drive has been replaced. But what worries me is that I have a whole lot of personal photos on my hard drive. And uh, I was wondering if the uh, service person at the computer shop will be able to look at my photos while he's repairing my computer. Uh, I'd like to keep them private. Diane in Pittsburgh. Well, the short answer, Diane, is yeah, he can see everything on your computer because he's got access to it. Uh, after the tech replaces the hard drive and restores all your files, everything on the drive will be open to him, including your personal photos. Now, you could, you, you've got two options here. Uh, there's, uh, you know, short of just sitting over his shoulder and watching what he does with your computer, <laughs> which I... <laughs> Which I, do I, I don't think is a very good option, especially with COVID. So yeah. what you could do, you could you could go in there and have him replace the hard drive and then give you the old hard drive. Then you could take it home and then you could restore it yourself at home uh, from your backup. That would be uh, that would be one option. Now, another option is you could just order re a replacement hard drive, replace it yourself. And, uh, and then you would, would do, the, uh, do the restore. So, and the fact is, it's really quite easy to replace a hard drive. There's, there's an open access uh, window at the bottom of the laptop, and you can, you can, get, a, uh, you can get the uh, user manual for your laptop. And you, and you can buy a replacement drive for, for your laptop quite easily. Make certain you get a 2.5-inch laptop hard drive. Now, if you're going to do it, I'd recommend you get a solid-state drive. Your computer will be a lot faster. So this just might be your opportunity, Diane, to become very expert at changing computer hard drives. We got an email from uh, Betty in Joplin, Missouri. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm confused by the power settings on my laptop. I want to conserve battery life. Is it better to hibernate my laptop or put it to sleep. The documentation isn't too clear. Love the podcast, Betty and Joplin. Well, Betty, when you place your PC into sleep mode, it goes into a low power state in which all your open programs and data are kept alive in RAM. So they're still in random access memory, and that random access memory takes power to keep active because it's refreshed multiple times a second. Now, on the other hand, hibernation takes all the contents of RAM, it copies them to a file on your hard drive so they're available, and then it shuts down the computer completely. No energy is being used. Then when you turn on the computer again, it comes out of hibernation, it takes those files that had your RAM information from the hard drive, puts them back in RAM, and restores the state of the computer as it was when it went into hibernation. So if you're just going to uh, shut off your computer, you know, for a lunch break, uh, put it to sleep. If you're going to shut down your computer for a few days and you want to save energy, put it in hibernation. Uh, that's the only, that, that would be my, my choice. Now, it turned out I, on my computer, hibernation uh, option I, when I, and my power down wasn't available. So you want to go to the power settings 
and then you want to go to additional settings and you can select which which options are available for you and so you've uh, you've got hibernation and sleep listen that was a great email email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can this is tech talk radio on federal news network 1500 a.m 1035 fm hd2 1039 fm hd2 in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM and southwest of Washington now on 107.7 FM HD2. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Gary Keith Starkweather. Gary Keith, Stark, Gary Keith Starkweather was an American engineer and inventor and known mostly for his invention of the laser printer and color management software for color printers. Gary was born January 9, 1938 in Lansing, Michigan. He was the only son of his parents, Richard and Crystal. His father owned a local dairy. His mom was a homemaker. Now, their home was near a junk shop. And Gary would go and try to get bargains on old radios, old washing machines, car parts that he could tinker with in the basement. He would take them apart and put them back together again. His parents pretty much gave him free reign with this activity. He'd get stuff from the junk shop. And they said, Gary, as long as you don't burn down the house, <laughs> we're good to go. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of people that wound up on profiles in IT took stuff apart when they were younger, didn't they? They certainly did. Oh, I hear that junk it's, it's shop a, that's music. The, the theme from Sanford and Sung, one of the most famous TV shows about junk. Yeah, it brings brings back memories. It I does. was a junk in the 70s, yard yeah. addict myself. I like to look around and yeah. get junk and tinker I, with it. I do too. So uh, he he ended up okay. Now this is why I like uh, Gary. He got a Bachelor of Science in Physics, okay? He's, he's my kind of guy. 
from Michigan State University in 1960. Then he moved to uh, Rochester. Actually, he got married after he graduated, after he got his bachelor degree, and he, he got a job with Bausch & Lomb. Now, Bausch & Lomb, of course, they're an optical company. They made lenses for eyeglasses, cameras, microscopes, and other equipment. So he moved to Rochester. I mean, Rochester, there's a whole lot of optics companies up there. That's where Eastman Kodak was yep. started, you mm -hmm. know. It was it's a big... Um, a lot of tech up there. Optical area, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, in 1966, uh, as you would expect, he got a master's in optics <laughs> from the University of Rochester. It's one of the specialties up there. I guess working at Bausch & Lomb, he thought that was good for his career. Yeah. Now, after he got his bachelor's degree, after he got his master's degree, several of his colleagues were laid off by Bausch & Lomb because I guess the lens-making business was sort of going down. And they moved to Xerox. There was a Xerox Research Center near them, and they, they moved over to Xerox, and, and Gary followed them. Now, in, uh, in, in 1964, Gary, Gary was there working at, at Rochester, and this was several years after Xerox had introduced the copier, you know, the Xerox copier, as mm -hmm. we now know, uh, lovingly call it, the Xerox machine. He began working on a new uh, product that would allow you to transmit information between two distant copiers so that a person could scan the document on copier A and it would print out on copier B in another city. So you could have copying at a distance. They thought this would be a great addition to their copier line. Well, what he decided to do, he says, well, you know, copiers, they, they sort of sprinkle powdered carbon, uh, which is uh, um, which is held by electrostatic electrostatically, and they fuse it into the paper. He thought there may be a better way to uh, to do this using lasers instead of fusers. So he actually developed a laser technique for uh, printing, and and he and he basically used lasers to transfer images to the paper. Now, that was really a great, uh, a great innovation, this laser printer. And, uh, but, uh, but he was actually working where he was going to, you would scan it at one copy or scan the paper at one Xerox machine, send it to another machine where it would be printed. And he said, why don't we just get rid of this whole scanning deal? That's ridiculous. Why don't we just let the image on the computer print directly to the laser printer. And then we just cut out the middleman. We don't need the Xerox machine. So he was really excited about that. He went to his bosses and they said, he said, look, I've got this great plan. I'm gonna take the computer. We're gonna print at a printer remotely or locally and we don't need a copier. They looked at him and they said, Gary, copiers are our core business. Why would we do this? So he kept working on it. Finally, they came down to his lab and they said, Mr. Starkweather, <laughs> if you don't stop working on this project, we're going to lay off your entire team. This is classic. Mm. You know, they invented the laser printer at Xerox. They didn't want to, it's like, uh, a guy who worked for Kodak invented the digital camera. Right. And they refused to let him develop it because it would cut into the film business. 
Well, uh, digital cameras eventually put them out of business, but Kodak didn't own the digital cameras. They had sold a license to digital cameras to another company. So what he did, there was a, uh, a research division for Xerox in Palo Alto, Palo Alto Research Center, P-A-R-C. I've talked about them before, yep. PARC, mm -hmm. Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. And they were uh, really doing all sorts of advanced uh, projects. He read about PARC in the, in, the, in the newsletter, and he said, you know, I, I think I need to take my laser printer idea out to PARC. So he hopped in his car. And he said, uh, I'm just going to go on a vacation to California. And he stopped in and visited Park and showed them what he was doing. And, uh, and he visited them in 1970. This was uh, six years after he came up with the idea for the laser printer. And, uh, and, he, talked to them, and he talked to them, and he was very well received because they, they liked innovators like him. So while he was still out in Rochester, he called his wife. And, uh, and, you know, of course, it was snowing there in Rochester, and it was sunny there in, uh, in Palo Alto, being at California. He said, how would you like to move to Cal Palo Alto? And his wife said, honey, I'll have the furniture on the street tonight. I'm ready to go. <laughs> so they moved to Palo Alto, and uh, while he was in Palo Alto, he built, because he could finally finish it, he built the first laser printer in 1971, in less than nine months after he got there. As he developed the laser printer, his colleagues built a personal computer that could drive it, the Alto. The Alto was a machine. It was actually a, what you see is what you get machine, a WYSIWYG machine. It had graphical user interface. It used a mouse. It was the next generation computer. In fact, the Alto is what gave Steve Jobs the inspiration to create the Macintosh. And also, it was the inspiration between Microsoft Windows. Now, uh, they also built there at PARC, Palo Alto Research Center, Ethernet. Ethernet is a, is a form of networking. It was invented there by Bob Metcalf. I've, I've, I've talked about Bob before. So they could, he could plug one laser printer into the entire network, and people could print to that laser printer from any computer on the network. And it would, it would uh, print uh, fast enough that if you say you'd print a 60-page document, the document would be printed by the time you could walk to the printer. It was, uh, it was a great system. Then they, uh, they split the, the lab into two buildings, and he figured a way to send a wireless signal to the next building so he could print in the next building. And, uh, I mean, this was basically, they were creating technology that we take, it, take, take for granted today. Now, uh, he also uh, made a major contribution to digital matte film techniques. He was a consultant to the digital effects team on the original Star Wars movie in 1977. Now, the problem with uh, Palo Alto Research Center and Xerox is that the bigwigs at corporate never really liked their technology. They said, look, we're a copier company. So the Alto, which was a pr premium advanced technology machine, they didn't do anything with it. They, they, they gave that stuff all to Steve Jobs and Apple. The printer... Uh, uh, and all the printer technology, the laser printer, was uh, all taken by a company that we now know as Adobe. Ethernet that Bob Metcalf created for networking 
uh, Bob, because he couldn't get uh, Xerox to do it, he started uh, 3Com, and they sold Ethernet cards. So all of that uh, great technology and that great team, Palo Alto Research Center didn't know what to do with them because they were so locked into the past. Now, in 1990, uh, Gary moved to uh, Apple. Now, of course, <clears throat> Apple, a lot, Apple hired a lot of people from Park because they, they, they wanted a lot of the Park technical folks to build the Macintosh. So they hired a lot of people from Park. They just, they stole it, basically the technology, hook, line, and sinker. And uh, while he was at Apple, uh, Apple wanted, uh, in addition to a black and white laser printer, they wanted a color printer. So he invented color management technology. And he led to the development of what they call color sync, because that was the issue. How can you get a color to look the same on the screen as it is when it prints out? And you need you need a technology that can make those adjustments mm -hmm. to give you trueness. What you see is what you get. In 1991, he was awarded the David Richardson Medal for that uh, invention of color sync. Now, in 1994, he won a an Academy Award for his pioneering work with Lucas Films and later Pixar, because remember Steve Jobs bought Pixar and it was in the field of color film scanning and how can you scan color film and maintain trueness of color. In 1997, uh, he, he decided to leave Apple. I guess he had, he'd done enough innovation there and he moved to Microsoft Research. He worked on display technology in uh, 2004, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Engineering. He retired in 2005. He died just last year, December 26, 2019, at age 81 of leukemia. So he had a very robust life in the creation of new technology, always making changes. There you go. Everything you'd want to know about Gary Keith Starkweather. Hope you're paying attention because you can turn that knowledge just imparted to you by Dr. Schertz into free food by playing the pop quiz coming up on Tech Talk Radio on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and now southwest of D.C. on 1077 FM HD2. You can hear us in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. 
IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers, here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love coming back to this enthusiastic audience. They're all worked up for you this morning. I know. You know, they love Classroom of the Airways. And, of course, being more than just a radio show, being a Classroom of the Airways, we have to assess whether our audience, who we call students, have actually been learning. Earlier in the show, we talked about Gary Keith Starkweather, He was, of course, an American inventor. He invented the laser jet. When he was young, he would get all these parts and tinker in the basement. Where did he get the parts? If you get the right answer to that question, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of the Stratford University dining rooms when they open up, and you'll get an A-plus for today's show. I really want the A-plus. If you know the answer to today's question, pick up the phone, give us a call. Dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Standing next to a pile of oyster shells shrouded in fog east of Pliondale Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're dealing with stark weather in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized on the hour with dollar store peanut butter. 877-936-39-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Well, I'd like to talk about the illness of the week, Jim. The illness of the week? The illness of the week. Now, many people think it could be COVID. No, it's not COVID. Zoom fatigue. Ah. Zoom fatigue is the meeting. According to Stanford researchers, Zoom fatigue is real. All those hours take a toll on your body and your brain that you don't have when you're at the office just doing your business. And now scientists know why. Now, researchers have studied Zoom fatigue. Actually, I had not really heard about it till recently, Jim, but, uh, but these researchers have been studying it. They say you are fatigued in Zoom meetings because of excessive and intense eye contact. You're constantly looking somebody in the eye on the screen. This is the really high stressor. You're constantly watching a video of yourself, always. You want to know, how do I look? How's my lighting? Does my hair look good? And that constantly watching a video of yourself is very stressful. You have limited mobility sitting there in front of the Zoom camera. You can't get up and walk around. Although I have to say, when I do Zoom meetings, Jim, I just turn off the camera and go walk around and, you know... Get a cup of, get a cup of water, get a mm-hmm. glass of water, and then come back. So you don't have to get stuck in behind your desk. But many people just don't get up. And finally, it takes a lot of energy to pick up on cues. You know, when you're with somebody, you can tell by body language what they mean. But you don't have all that body language in Zoom, so you have to really concentrate to pick up on the cues. So 
What researchers recommend to avoid Zoom fatigue is don't look at yourself. Minimize the, your own picture and look at the picture of others. And position your desk so that you can move around. And I, I'd recommend, they didn't put it in the article, I'd recommend occasionally turning off the video and go get a glass of water and walk around. And then you can avoid Zoom fatigue, illness of the week. That's that's interesting. And, you know, the the um, you've raised some issues here because – it, it is difficult. Now, I have three computer monitors on my computer, and when I do a Zoom call, usually I'm also working, and yep. so I'm not able to make eye contact with the computer so that it looks like to the people on the Zoom call that I'm looking at them, which is a problem, but usually the Zooms I'm involved in happen when I'm doing something else. Yeah. So, so making eye contact is hard because sometimes the camera is in different places on different people's computers. So that's difficult, yep. and and you're you're absolutely right. So what is the so would it be considered rude? Do you think if you were a guest on a Zoom call, if you turned the camera off, and you walked around, how would that be perceived? Do you think? I don't. I don't think people would like that. Yeah, uh, but I you're think, the boss. Uh, you can do whatever you want. I get well. I, I turn the camera off, but then I come back. Right. People do like to see me. I'm not off that long. Mm-hmm. I just if I I just, I'll get up, walk around for maybe uh, thirty seconds or a minute, then come back and turn the camera on. Just as long so as so you're so you're not just locked in. But not having visual cues that is an issue. I mean, I it, doing this radio show, it's harder for us yeah. because we can't see each other. That's right. And and so not having visual cues is a big problem. Well, you know, okay. Just... There's there, there's also another thing relating to Zoom, Jim. Trick of the week. Oh, what's that? Should I do this trick well, of the week? Since it's it, it's germane, it's go Zoom ahead. related and it's trick of the week. Okay, mm-hmm. this was an eight she she eight year old girl. She had to do these Zoom calls for her uh, uh, class, first grade class, and she figured a way how to get out of it. It turned out that her Zoom client, if you log in with the wrong password twenty times, it locks you out because it thinks somebody's hacking your account. So every morning she would log into her Zoom account until it was locked. And then when the, the time for the Zoom call would show up, she'd say, Mom, I can't log in. I won't take it. They would call IT support. They did all this work. And she did this every day for a week until finally her dad decided to watch what she did. And he caught her doing it. And, but she, very an eight-year-old girl, very successfully figured out the Zoom trick of the week so you don't have to go to class. I think she deserves an A+. I think she does, too. She is very innovative. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and now southwest of Washington on 1077 FM HD2. In Loudoun County, listen to us on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. I, I just love this meditation room. What's the feng shui in the bunker? It is. And, you know, we made certainly got the entrance of the bunker pointed in the right direction so we could, you know, we had could have a peaceful, peaceful place to meditate in the bunker. Well, this week in the bunker, I started thinking about um, Palo Alto Research Center and Xerox and how ineffective they were at capitalizing on innovative products that their teams created because they competed with an existing product. I mean, this is a classic problem in corporations that uh, are not successful over the long haul. Now, if you look at uh, Silicon Valley, we've got companies there that just keep renewing themselves and they keep uh, introducing new products and new products in order to survive. So the question is, how can a company fend off startups that are gonna try to put them out of business? How can they keep innovating so that they will, in fact, keep growing? Obviously, Xerox did not do it. And you notice they're not one of the top-tier tech companies now. Because even though they were a tech leader in the day, they didn't take advantage of it. Well, there are four rules that can help a company succeed in not becoming obsolete, succeed in innovating with new products. Rule number one get in the habit of creating new business units that compete with old business units, okay? I mean, Steve Jobs did it all the time. In 2005, when the demand for the iPod mini was huge, he created the iPad Nano, and immediately, revenue for iPad mini dried up. And then while iPod sales were going through the roof, he launched the iPhone, that totally replaced the iPod. And the iPhone was a cell phone, internet access, and iPod all in one. So he would always create products that would cannibalize existing products, and he just wasn't afraid to do that. And all of the successful companies in Silicon Valley, in fact, do that. Rule number two, find a balance between derivative projects, platform upgrades, and breakthrough innovation. So like all companies are kind of good at derivative products where you say, well, we've got 
this product, let's tweak it a little bit for a different market. Uh, they could all they can they can do platform upgrades, but they need breakthrough innovation. So you need to find a balance between all three areas of innovation: derivative products, platform upgrades, and breakthrough innovation. So you've got to allocate resources to all three areas. Rule number three, probably the most important, create a bypass mechanism to pitch ideas to the top. You see, uh, when uh, when Gary created the laser jet, he was pitching his ideas to people that were managing the copier business. And they said, yeah, we can't do that. It's going to cut the bottom line. My bonus is going to go down. So Gary needed to pitch his idea to the CEO directly and say, this is a new business area that we could really go after. But Xerox did not have these bypass mechanisms. So there are some companies, for instance, that, that host what they call pitch idea days, where employees can come and pitch anything they want, and the top managers, the CEO, the CFO, the COO, all the top people in the company listen to those ideas that are coming from all levels in the uh, management hierarchy. And this is a way for somebody with a great idea to talk directly to the top man without worrying about uh, who reports to who. And the final rule number four, which, uh, which 3M did very well is, because if you can't measure it, you can't do it. So you have to set a parameter about it. So what you need to do, you need to do something like this. We want a certain percentage of our revenue to come from ideas that were created in the last four years. Now, 3M did this famously. They, they require that every division must have 30% of their revenue coming from products that were invented in the last four years, launched in the last four years. And that forced them to always be looking for the next best thing. And if you have that metric, 30%, a certain percentage of, of, of revenue coming from new products, that will help you enforce number one, which is always to be looking for, for innovative ideas. So if a company can follow these four rules, they can avoid being another Xerox. Maryland yeah. is going to tax online ads. And, you know, Maryland, of course, is, is known as a tax a tax uh, taxing state, tax and spend state. They've got we, a lot of taxes. At least the joke that in Maryland, they even taxed the rain. They did until but, the current governor. The governor Hogan has rolled back a lot of this stuff. But when you have a general assembly that is of the other party, it's hard to. Exactly. Yeah. Hogan is trying to hold the tide. But the General Assembly wants wants more. So the General Assembly there in Maryland uh, 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 has voted to charge a tax on all ad revenue in uh, in Maryland. It will it will vary between 2.5 percent and 10 percent of revenue. Now that bill was uh, vetoed by Governor Hogan, but the veto was overridden by the state by the legislature by the House of Delegates in the Senate. And so now it's only going to apply to companies that make more than $100 million a year, which means it's just for the big tech companies. The, the tax is expected to draw an estimated $250 million to, as they say, help fund education. Now, as I remember, when they passed the, the Gambling Act that allowed casinos in Maryland, they right. said, well, we're going to fund education. I remember that. You know what? 
none of that money ever never made it to education. That's a funny thing about uh, <laughs> taxes and government funding. The money doesn't always wind up where it's supposed to go, does it? Exactly. So whenever they have a tax increase, they say, well, this is going to go for education. And then they figure as soon as the taxes pass, uh, they'll forget about that promise. So there is some risk, according to the Maryland Attorney General, that this bill will be will be uh, will be knocked down by the uh, by the state courts over constitutional issues. Forty years ago, Apollo blasted off for the moon, and of course Neil Armstrong took the first step on the moon with those famous words, "That's one small step for man, mm -hmm. one giant leap for mankind." Now, man walked on the moon for the first time July 21st, 1969, when Armstrong stepped off the space module Eagle and uttered that line. Shortly afterwards, he was joined by Buzz Aldrin. Millions of people around the world saw this history being made before their eyes. The original unseen footage in a computer animation of the historic mission is available at wechoosethemoon.org. I don't know who came up with that. That's really memorable, we isn't it? We choose the moon.org. All no spaces. We choose the moon.org. And I went to we choose the moon.org and it's quite a, quite a nice uh, display of uh, of footage. It took Apollo 11 4 days from the countdown of the Saturn V rocket at the start of the journey to finally land on the moon. Now here is a tragedy though. NASA lost all the original footage of the moon walk. How did they do that? Now, they put a man on the moon, but the original video of the live TV transmission was lost. The space agency admitted on Thursday that it must have erased the Apollo 11 moon footage years ago so it could reuse the videotape. Oh, come on. I'm thinking this is a kind this of this is a kind of stuff that people do when they you know what they you know they 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 tape a ball game over their over their wedding videotape and then well, they get sometimes it's, it's not a bad idea. It's kind of a common thing that husbands do by mistake and they they get I, not that I would ever have done that but it's it has happened. No. It turned a huge search began three years ago for the old tapes and it led to the inescapable conclusion that forty this is on forty five tapes of the Apollo 11 video were erased and reused. The original videos beamed to the Earth were stored on giant reels of tape, each containing 15 minutes of video along with other data. In the 70s and 80s, NASA's, NASA had a shortage of tapes, so it erased 200,000 tapes and Is reused it, them. There are CVS across Space Coast Highway <laughs> But now. NASA. Hollywood is coming to the rescue. Oh, thank God. Now, the studio who restored Casablanca uh, to, and made it digitally sharpened is cleaning up the footage of the moon landing. What they did, they didn't have the original footage, which would have been clean and crisp, so they went around the world and tried to find whether, there, you know, there were retransmissions of the footage, and uh, they were able to reclaim, uh, well, as they say, NASA scrounged from around the world Four copies of the footage that had been sent over broadcast television, lower mm -hmm. quality. And now they're taking and trying to restore it. And the first batch of restored footage was released just in time for the 40th anniversary. Uh, and uh, some of the details uh, seem new because of their, their sharpness. The original unseen footage in a computer animation is available at, again, we 
chose. The we moon. choose the moon. We choose the moon. We choose the moon. That's two O's. Dot org. Two and then two more O's in moon. Yeah, so there mm-hmm. you go. Now, you know, the interesting thing about this moonshot, I mean, if we just want to go back and talk about some of the uh, some of the, the technology. Now, the guidance system, when they landed on the moon, was, of course, it was operated by a computer. The computer had a whopping 36 kilobytes of memory. It's not much. 36 kilobytes mm. of memory. This computer had less power than the computer that's, that's in your kitchen stove. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they went to the moon on 36 kilobytes. Now, a simple email message today can take up more computer space than that. Mm-hmm. Now, on the plus side, the computer had a mean time be- between failures of 70,000 hours because it was, I mean, it was like a little calculator, yeah. really. Now, th- this reliability led NASA to later use the computer to control the first digital fly-by-wire aircraft without any mechanical backup. Because of the limited memory, the interface to the Apollo computer was primitive, and every command, every word command, had a number code. So, for example, to open a valve, the astronaut would hit verb and then type the number for the word open Mm -hmm. and then hit noun and then put the number for valve. So you can put in two numbers and... And you can see here, there's a, um, here's the, I'll show you the interface there. I'll show you, I'll hold it up to the, I'll hold it up there to the webcam. Oh, so. Yeah, so those of you are watching on the, uh, on Animal Planet, we've, we've changed affiliations yeah, yeah. here. So, We're going to hold this up. Now the, that. now the thing is, this, this is, yeah, you got that, isn't that, it's, I mean, that's, it's, that well, is. It's black and white, so on HDTV, it's not going to look so good. Now, now what is, now what is interesting, when he was, uh, when he was actually landing on the moon, you know, he was coming down. Uh, you know, they were. It was landing by computer, and then, uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the captain. Who was the captain on this thing? Captain Kirk, wasn't it? No, yeah. no. Come on, come on, Neil, Neil, Neil Armstrong, Armstrong. Neil yeah. Armstrong. Come on, let's let's keep serious. <laughs> I'm gonna hurt myself. Yeah, Neil Neil Armstrong looked at, and and he didn't like. They were they were landing on some big some big rock. So he mm-hmm. grabbed the joystick and he repositioned it, and he landed manually about 30 feet over. And when he took over the joystick, there was only 30 seconds worth of fuel. Really? Yeah, so you can, you know, so they were really running on the edge here back, mm. back then. So it's kind of an interesting um, interesting development. And so a lot of uh, a lot of technology has sort of come out of the uh, out of all of the the moon landing, but the computer technology was really quite primitive <laughs> back then. But this is a this is a big event, the 40th anniversary of the moon landing. We haven't been back to the moon since. We haven't. And I bet pr- things have changed on the moon. Yeah, I want to. Well, I got Taco Bell up there by now. I think. You know, that's, all that's on the other side of the oh, moon. Oh, the other side See, of the moon. It's the, all the, the dark side of the moon. It's all on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> See, there's there's probably a whole there's probably a whole city of aliens on the dark side of the moon. Mm-hmm. We just have to we have to get up there and take get a up look. There. Dry that's cleaners, all kinds of crazy. Yeah, we, we don't even they drive no. old 1950s vintage American oh. cars. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. That's it for this week. See you next week for more Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.